and this is the Warrior Priest Podcast bonus episode for the week of September 3rd, 2022, and I'm the Warrior Priest, Don Riley. In 1998, October 5th, 1998, I attended my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And for the next 12 years, I regularly attended meetings, volunteered to serve my home group, volunteered to serve as a representative for my home group at the district and regional level of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I took the call to be a pastor at the congregation that I currently served, I continued to attend meetings regularly up until and through 2013, 2014. At that time, because I was looking for something to supplement Alcoholics Anonymous, to add to attending meetings, I started attending jujitsu classes and then Muay Thai classes. And for the most part, as I've discussed on this podcast before, that is a significant part of my sobriety today. Jiu-Jitsu, Muay Thai, training, teaching, being a part of the mixed martial arts community. As a consequence of finally acknowledging that I was powerless over alcohol and that I needed a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity and to give me sobriety, I needed to accept that I had very little, almost no standards for my personal behavior, personal boundaries, how I interacted with others, my ethic regarding work, play, home life, community life. As I got into my program of sobriety, and started working the 12 steps, reading the big book, attending meetings, asking, choosing sponsors. It became clear, quickly it became clear, that I needed to develop an ethic, a standard, a moral compass for myself if I was going to remain sober, if I was going to remain married, if I was going to be an effective and present father, and that if I was going to undertake the mission to reverse generations of addiction and abuse, divorce, not showing up for my children, this was not something that was going to be accomplished in a few weeks or even a few years, but it was going to require a lifetime commitment by myself. As a consequence, that meant that my wife also had to make a commitment to breaking a generation or two or three within her own family of behaviors, standards. And we did that together. In the first 11 years we were married, that's what we did, is we wrestled and we fought. We attended AA meetings and Al-Anon meetings. We went to counselors and therapists. We read and we read and we read everything we could get our hands on about sobriety, about 
breaking out of this, this generation's long cycle of addiction and abuse because we wanted something different for ourselves as individuals and as a couple and then subsequently as a family. And like I said, the first 11 years were the hardest. They were the most difficult. They were filled with conflict and anger and yelling and frustration. It was a wrestling match. And it was difficult. It was difficult to be around me. It was difficult to be around her. Because it was a struggle and we were traveling through uncharted territory. We didn't have a roadmap. We didn't have mentors necessarily that we could turn to. Within AA and Al-Anon, we did. Occasionally we would meet someone who had trodden the path that we were on. But for the most part, we were on our own. It was our burden to carry. It was the weight that had been put upon us. And so it was ours and ours alone. But after those first 11 years, things finally started to get better, get easier. There were less fights, less arguments, less debate. Jump forward to the present tense, we've been married 24 years. We don't fight anymore. We don't yell at each other anymore. When we have a disagreement, when we have a conflict, we talk it out. We try to understand each other. We use it as an opportunity to improve the way in which we express ourselves, to get out what we're thinking, to test what we are feeling, to expose it, to let it breathe the air, to test whether or not what we're thinking or feeling is correct or incorrect, whether it needs to be tweaked or thrown in the garbage. And especially the last seven years, we have really leaned into a certain ethic, a certain lifestyle, a way of behaving, not just in how we comport ourselves as individuals and as husband and wife, but also then instilling this in our children. So that not only do we read the Word of God and pray with our children, but we also put the Stoic philosophers into their hands. We put things like the warrior kid, by Jocko Willink, or Extreme Ownership, into their hands. We expose them to thinkers and people that have been through some pretty rough stuff in their lives. Addicts, people who have suffered abuse, law enforcement, military veterans who have seen horrific things in their service. We've talked with people and allowed our children to sit at the table while we talked with people whose marriage is disintegrated, whose children despise them and they are alienated from the rest of their family. People who, no matter how hard they try, no matter how many times they get back up, it seems that they just keep getting knocked back down. Every time they conquer their demon, it seems as if seven more return, more powerful than the last. Because we want our children to get a picture of the brutal reality that is life but also that there is always hope, there is always light in the darkness. But it starts with asking yourself, what is my standard? 
what is my personal ethic? How am I going to comport myself? How am I going to behave? How am I going to walk in this world and interface with other people? What will I tolerate in my presence? And what will I forgive? But as I was reminded again this morning, our standard as a family, as individuals, is out of step with the culture, out of step with where most people that I engage with, where their standard is. See, the word standard, it's an old word, comes from the 11th century, or the 1100s, 12th century. It's probably Frankish in origin. It means to stand hard, the standard. It means stand hard, stand fast. It is represented by a military standard, by a banner, by a flag. It's an upright pole with a flag attached to it that you drive into the ground. It's where the troops rally. It's a signal to everyone on the battlefield that we are still in this fight. And so a standard is where you plant your flag. The standard is where you stand fast and stand upright. The standard bearer then is the one who has to stand there and defend that flag, knowing full well that every enemy soldier is gunning for you because if they can capture your flag, if they can take your standard down, that is a sign that your side has lost the battle and possibly the war. So amongst the ranks of soldiery, there is no more dangerous, no more life-threatening vocation than to be the standard bearer. You march at the front of the troop you stand in the midst of the battle with your hand gripping that spear, holding that pole, maintaining that standard so that when your brothers in arms look up and they scan the battlefield for their rallying point and they see that flag, they see that standard, they see the bearer standing hard, holding it aloft, that's their true north. That's their light in the midst of the darkness. That's their lighthouse in the midst of raging seas. And if it falls, that's a signal that they are soon to fall as well. And that's what I see when I engage with people, when I listen to people, when I look at our society today in the United States. Our standard bearers have fallen. There are so few people left in my life who stand fast, who stand hard, who take up that flag, that banner, and plant it in the ground and hold tight to it so that others can rally around it, can rally around them, that they can be a light in the darkness, that their ethic, their standard inspires and stirs others to seek out that standard. Nowadays, people vilify me. They demonize us. 
They don't want to have anything to do with us. They avoid us, and unfortunately, then they avoid our children because they are attached to us, and our children bear, to a greater and lesser extent, our standard. And they are offended by us. They are angered and confused by us. They consider us to be out of step with the culture and with society. We are told that our standards are too high and that we have to compromise if we want to get along and enjoy the company of other people. That we should soften our stance. That it's okay to take a break. It's okay to take a step back. So they avoid us. They avoid me. And unfortunately, because I refuse to compromise, I have to accept that this is the way it is for myself as an individual, for us as a married couple, and for us as a family, for myself even as a pastor, that I hold myself personally to a high standard. That doesn't mean then that I think of myself as being more righteous than other people, better than other people, that somehow because I hold myself to a higher standard, I expect other people then to rise to my standard. I don't. I learned long ago that that is an impossible expectation that I put on other people when I do that. And so I don't look down, so to speak, because I am always climbing upward. And if you wish to join me, I'm happy for the company. But if you choose not to, if you believe it's too hard, if you think it's unrealistic, if you think I'm being monomaniacal in my pursuit of excellence, to do something significant with my life, to be of service to other people in such a way that I sacrifice my ego sacrifice my selfish needs, my cravings, my lusts, that I accept the world as it is and not as I would have it be for me. I understand. I was there once too. But I cannot go back down. I cannot stop moving forward because I am the standard bearer for my family for my community, for my church, even at my gym. I have to stand fast. I have to stand hard. I have to hold that pole. I have to make sure that that flag flies. Because if I don't, then I'm afraid that I'll lose my sobriety because it's happened before. I speak from experience. I'm afraid that I'll let down my wife and my children. I'm afraid that I'll let down the people that look to me as a leader, as someone they can trust, as someone they trust is going to show up for them when they need me. I'm afraid that I won't be able to show up for myself. That is both then inspiring to me but also one of the great frustrations of, of my life. So I've gone back the last several weeks and reviewed 
the 12 steps, the big book. I started listening to lectures and people who shared their witness about their sobriety and how they got there. And it has helped me recover things that had kind of gotten buried in the back of the closet, so to speak. Things that I had read, things that I listened to, things that I used to do regularly that because of time, because of life, got pushed to the back of the closet. And this way I get to dig them back out and remind myself, refresh myself, that there's some good stuff back there. And I shouldn't throw it out, shouldn't sell it off at the garage sale or take it to Goodwill and say, I don't need this standard anymore. I don't need this book anymore. I don't need to listen to these speakers anymore because I do need them. I need all of it to remind me of how far I've come, how far I can fall if I give up and quit, if I let my standards slip, but also to remind me of the cost, how many people I have left in my wake since 1998, how many friendships I have broken from or ruined because of my struggle to be and remain sober, to build a family to break this generation's long cycle of abuse and addiction. It's been a clumsy journey, so to speak. It's been awkward, lumbering. Sometimes I feel like Godzilla destroying Tokyo. But I know in the end that this struggle is good, that this sacrifice is good, that the path that I'm on is good, But I need to be reminded from time to time, maybe even day to day, minute to minute, that even though it's good, that doesn't mean that it's going to be pain-free, that there's not going to be struggle and hardship and affliction attached to it, that as I travel this path, I have to accept that there's not that many people here. Not that many people who are willing to go where I am going to walk with me, to help me, to carry the weight with me. And maybe there's nobody except my wife that can do that. Maybe there's nobody but God himself who understands that suffering, that pain that comes with establishing that standard. You don't just find it all at once. You grow into it. You discover it. It's an adventure. That means it comes with aches and pains. It means you fail. It means you take the wrong path, the wrong fork in the road, and you've got to backtrack and go the other way. It means that you're going to encounter adversity and conflict. And if you avoid it, if you run away from it, if you retreat from it, you learn from doing those things that you are lesser because of it. And the thing is, for myself anyways, at the root of my sobriety, at the root of this standard, this ethic, this code of conduct that I have established for myself, it is a pursuit that leads to the death of myself, both in a figurative and a very real way. That's really what we're talking about when we discuss that I have to do today what is necessary to kill the person I was yesterday. 
that I want to be a better version of myself today than who I was yesterday. And I think that is a noble and honorable pursuit. It's terribly painful some days. And it makes me want to sit down and cry some days, especially when I see how it affects our children. They didn't ask to be born into this. They didn't ask for us to be their parents. They didn't volunteer and choose this standard, but they inherited it and they live with it, with us every day. And as a consequence, they suffer for it too. And as my wife says, it makes them stronger. It makes them more prepared for what they're going to encounter when they leave our home. But that doesn't ease the pain. Sometimes it doesn't make the guilt any less impactful. It's one thing to choose suffering for yourself. It's one thing to have the weight put on your shoulders and have to bear that for yourself. It's another thing to have another adult walk with you and bear that with you. But to see your children suffer as a consequence, to see other people's children suffer as a consequence of their parents' decisions, this is something that has affected me since before I had children of my own. It's the thing that probably first taught me that life isn't fair. You're born into a family of drug addicts. You're born into abuse. You're born into and given to parents who have no standard or have just the bare bottom, lowest possible ethic manageable. You don't ask for that. You didn't volunteer for that service. It was thrust upon you and you have to suffer it. And then you spend the rest of your life dealing with it, managing it, moving through it, escaping it. Generation after generation after generation. Cleaning up after your parents. Cleaning up after your grandparents and great-grandparents. Moving forward rather than backwards. Climbing rather than sliding. Struggling rather than giving up. And that's what I see all around me today. People who have given up who maintain the barest of ethics. They establish the barest of standards for themselves, just enough so that they can get by and not have to confront the hopelessness of their lives. Here's a secret that most people in the church don't want to admit, especially clergy. But any cleric with any kind of experience is confronted with this at some point. And after 15 years, I'm able to articulate it for myself. And it's this. It's a microcosm, let's say, of the culture, right? Most people who attend church on Sunday are not Christians. They're just pitiful people who are running away from something. And so they run to the church because they see that, they think, they believe, they hope that this box on the corner, provides a safe space for them to avoid confrontation, avoid acceptance, avoid owning up to something in their life that they don't want to confront. They don't want to look at it in the mirror. They don't want to 
accept the consequences of this thing that they're trying to avoid. And when it gets too unsafe at that church, they flee it. They run to another church, they run to another group, they run to another safe space so that they can continue to avoid the thing that keeps driving them to hide from the reality of their life. And that's why I say most people, 99% of the people that I encounter have the bare minimum for an ethic. They have little to no standard of excellence or significance. They define excellence and significance as, well, we have our home. We have bought this home. We have these vehicles in the garage. We go on this vacation every summer. We have these children who are involved in these activities at their school. We do all of the things that other people do. Isn't that significant? Isn't that excellent? No, that's the status quo. That's the bare minimum. It's a pretty low bar for entry. And yet most people think that their lives are significance, that it means something because they've checked off the cultural boxes. They've done what they've been taught to do their whole life. Get married, have kids, buy a house, get cars, go on a vacation, get a job. That's not living a life of significance, at least not to me. That's living a life of quiet desperation that leads to nihilism. Do the bare minimum in your marriage. Do the bare minimum for your family, at your job, in your life. Do just enough to get by, just enough to provide cover for yourself, to avoid the hopelessness by which you live. What is the meaning of your life? Why are you here? Where are you going? What are your goals? What is your purpose? What is your mission? What higher thing do you serve? And that's what I mean when I say that the children have to suffer it the most. I believe, I truly believe, especially the last two years, that the good Lord has protected us, protected myself, my family. But the hardest part of that then is to watch the children suffer for it, to watch how the last two years have affected other families and how their children suffer because of their parents' choices or avoidance of having to make a choice. Like I said, as an adult, as a married couple, we've been through it. We've suffered for so long. We can just talk with each other. We can sort it out. We can use that as fuel to strengthen and firm up our relationship and ourselves as individuals. But the kids don't understand that because they don't have the experience. They don't have the maturity to understand that. They're rallying around the standard that I planted in the ground. And because they love me and they trust me unconditionally, they believe that what I am doing for them is best. When they compare themselves to other children, when they look at other families, even when they struggle to understand, they still accept that what we do is best. Because that's the way children are. They trust unconditionally. They love unconditionally. They'll even make excuses for their family. That's how much they love and trust what they're a part of. Even when they disagree, even when they know it's wrong, they'll make excuses. 
because they don't have the maturity, they don't have the experience, they don't even have the words sometimes to weather the disappointment that they experience, not being able to enjoy friendships, not being able to enjoy fellowship with other kids their age because the parents are messed up. Parents can't get their shit together. They don't like my wife and I. They don't agree with how we parent or how we live our life. They don't agree with how I pastor my congregation. They don't agree with our choices. There are people that avoid me because they disagree with the fact that I'm a Christian and a pastor and also an MMA fighter. And rather than sit down and talk with me to seek to understand this dichotomy, how can you be a man of peace but also a man who seeks out fighting and conflict? They don't sit down with me. They don't want to understand. They don't want to talk with me. They don't want to give me an opportunity to express and explain myself theologically, philosophically. They just make their judgment of me. And then they cast that net over my wife and my children as well. They cast it over my church. They cast it over my home. Because they don't want to get into a confrontation. They don't want to get into a conflict. Even if it's just, I don't understand why you do this. Can you help me? Can you walk me through this? For them, that is too much to expect. That is too much to ask. That's too much conflict. That's too much violence. So they avoid us. They make a judgment about us. They gossip about us. They don't allow their children to interface and interact with our children. They don't accept our invitations to sit at our table, to break bread, to have a cup of coffee, to just get together to talk. Instead, they just make up their own mind, make their own judgment, and move on. And like I said, I know this makes children strong. It made me strong enough to survive growing up in a house with an addict who's abusive, in a family of addicts who are abusive. I was strong enough to get sober. I was strong enough to go out and have my own adventures. I was strong enough to not get divorced when things got bad for my wife and I. I was strong enough to sit at my son's bedside when he had brain surgery. I was strong enough to sit at my first daughter's bedside when she had RSV and she was in an oxygen tent. Strong enough to survive all of the rejection and judgment of others who tried to bar me from entry into the church, who said I would never be a pastor, who said I would never succeed, I would never write my doctoral thesis. Strong enough to survive to the present tense. All those who say I have unrealistic standards, unrealistic expectations of myself and others. It makes you strong to weather that storm, to survive, to establish, to plant your flag, to say, this is my standard, and I will not relent, I will not go down, I will not look down, I will continue to climb step by step up to the moon and beyond that. It's that strength that pushes past the pity and the fear and the conflict avoidance but when you choose that for yourself, when you build upon that, when you carry that standard, that you refuse to pity yourself and other people, you refuse to live in fear, you refuse to avoid the conflict because you know that on the other side of all of that is what is good and what is true and what is right. That there is strength and there is true life on the other side of that. 
So you're going to push through that. You're going to continue to climb no matter how thin the air becomes. You're going to climb and struggle and move forward step by step, inch by inch on your hands and knees if necessary. And you accept along the way that there are fewer and fewer people that are next to you who are on that path as it gets more difficult. To have a standard is to plant that flag. It's to stand hard like a mountain, unmovable, unmoved. To have a standard is to say, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. To stand upright. To not lay your flag down. To not surrender. And to accept that there are not many who are going to rally around you. That people are going to fall all around you. People you love are going to abandon you and turn their backs to you, turn their faces away from you. Friends and family will walk away. But it's not you they're walking away from. It's your standard. It's too much. You set your standards too high. Why are you trying to shoot the moon? Why can't you just climb on this little hill and sit down and be satisfied with that? Why can't you accept the bare minimum for yourself and for those you love? Why do you have to make sobriety the most important part of every day? Why do you need to make gratitude the most important part of every morning? Why do you need to fall in love with the people that you love all over again every day when they're there every day? My answer is this. I am entitled to nothing. I am entitled to nothing. I am not entitled to love. I'm not entitled to trust. I'm not entitled to anybody's respect or regard. I'm not entitled to money or fame, house, home, possessions. I'm not entitled to anything. Everything that I have, every person in my life that loves and respects me unconditionally does so because I deserve it, because I worked my ass off every day and I failed every day and I embarrassed myself and did things that are shameful constantly in this struggle to get and stay sober to build a family that I can say, this is good. To raise children who I can look at and at the very least be satisfied that I've done what I needed to do. I was of service to them as their father, establishing a new standard for them. And now it's up to them whether they want to carry that flag forward for me when I fall, when I lose strength, when I can't keep it up anymore. They can drop the flag in the dirt. They can trample it in the blood and the mud. They can build a new standard. That's their choice. But as their father, I've given them an option. 
And I understand that that option is a hard path because it's uphill all the way. And it requires immense sacrifice, personally, professionally, socially. Like I said, there's not a lot of people on this path, which means you're not going to have a lot of friends. But the ones you meet along the way, they're the real ones. They're authentic. They're the ones who are going to show up for you through thick and thin. They're going to be there on their knees in the mud and the blood to pray with you. They answer the phone. They come running because they've been in the shit. And they speak the same language as you. But they're few and far between nowadays. Because so few people have any standard nowadays. And that's why I got on the mic today and talked about this, because I just needed to get it out for myself. Because I'm hurting right now. And I'm struggling right now. Not for myself, but for my kids. They didn't choose this, they inherited it. They inherited this maniac for a father. And so down the road, someday, maybe they'll listen to this and they'll hear it and they'll understand what we sacrificed, what we gave up to be of service to them, to each other, to our community, to our church, to our gym. And they can make their own judgment. They can make up their own mind about whether it was worth it, what my wife and I did for them, what we did for ourselves, what I did for myself as an individual, because at root, I had to get sober for me. And I had to stay sober for me. And I had to set the standard for me. That I have to be the one that stands on that hill and holds that flag. I have to stand hard. I have to keep moving forward. And the weight that has been put on my shoulders, the burden that I bear, is the burden of a man and a husband and a father and a pastor and a fighter. And you have your burden to bear. You have your weight that you carry. And sometimes it just gets too much and you go down on on your knee. You go down on your hands and your knees. Sometimes you're face down in the mud. And you got to summon the strength just to turn your head so you can breathe. And yet you're listening to this, which means you're strong. It means that you got back up. It means that you can get back up and you can move through this. Come what may. Our scars are our trophies. Our failures are what have led us to our greatest successes. Our weakness in the past is what makes us strong today. The fact that we had no standard in the past or our standard was the size of a cocktail napkin that we carried around in our pocket, the bare minimum to just get by from day to day. Whereas now we carry these banners, these long, broad banners. We stand hard because we have no choice. We have to. We did it to get sober. We did it for our children. We did it for our family and friends. We did it for our community. We did it for our brothers and sisters. We did it because we had to at the time. But now we do it because we get to. 
And the only way, no matter what happens, maybe we lose our families. Maybe our children grow up and dismiss us and say, wasn't worth it. It cost too much. We're out. Maybe it costs you your sobriety some days. Maybe you fall off the path. Maybe you do slide downhill. Maybe you have a bad day or a bad month or a bad decade. But that doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean that what you're doing is foolish or stupid or a waste of time. Because when you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see failure? Do you see hopelessness? Do you see a fool? Do you see a maniac and a lunatic? Do you see a freak? Maybe. But you know what? That's just that little man or woman that lives rent-free in your head who shouts lies at you all day long. That's not who you are at your core. We are our own worst critics. And we amplify self-criticism. We amplify other people's judgment about us so that it gets so loud that we can barely hear ourselves think. We can't even see our real face in the mirror. We cannot be honest and sober with ourselves because we let that negative self-talk creep in and we devour ourselves. We cannibalize ourselves. In fact, we end up cannibalizing the best parts of ourselves by tearing ourselves apart for simply standing up and moving forward. Why get up again? You're just going to fall down. Why continue to climb? You're just going to slide down. Why keep going? There's nobody up here. Maybe they're right. Maybe your standards are too high. Maybe they have turned you into somebody that other people don't like to be around. Maybe you are ugly to them. But it's not because you're a monster, even though you're a monster to them. It's not because you're a threat, even though you're a threat to them. It's not because you're pitiful. It's because they're pitiful and they're projecting onto you their pitifulness. It's because you're on the path. It's because you're striving. It's because you've set your standard and you've decided to stand hard and you stick that spear in the ground and you stand it upright and you refuse to let go. You refuse to let your standard hit the blood and the mud of the ground you refuse to be a light or you refuse to be dark and instead you're a light in the darkness. You are that lighthouse in the storm. Whether you want to believe it or not, whether you see that or not, whether other people see that in you or not, that's what you are. I'm telling you that's what you are because I've been there and I'm there right now. And I love, I love to get down on my hands and knees in the blood and the mud and to wallow in the shit of this world. I love it because I was born into it and I grew up in it and it's safe and it's comfortable and it's warm for me to be there. And I don't want to get back up again, but I have to. I have to stand back up because I have to keep going. I have to keep moving forward. And I'll end with this. It's a line from a Tom McDonald song that 
most people's ceiling is my ground. That if you want to talk to me, you have to look up to me. That's my standard. I'm not looking down on you because I'm being condescending. I'm not looking down on you because I think I'm better than you are. I'm not looking down on you to judge you. I don't look down. I keep moving forward. I keep climbing. I keep struggling. And I use that flag. I use that standard as my walking stick. So that when I don't have the strength, when it gets too steep, I thrust that spear into the ground and I hold on to it and I use it to pull myself up another couple inches. Because my standard is the only thing at the end of the day that's still there with me. Just me and God and this standard. And right next to me is my wife. And right behind us are our children. And they are so strong because of that. So you have a choice. You can put the flag down. You can walk back down the mountain. You can go back down into the valley of death, the valley of tears and sorrow and pity. You can do that. That choice is always there. Or you can continue to move forward, move through this, continue to climb, continue to bear your standard and to say, this is it. This is how I conduct myself. This is how I'm going to behave. This is how I'm going to comport myself. And I do not expect you to walk with me, but if you do, welcome. You are my brother and sister in arms. For those of you who say it's too much, it's too hard, it's too much of a struggle, it's too dangerous, you're expecting too much, you're going too far, I understand. I was where you were at once. And the only difference between us is I kept climbing. So please, if you're listening to this today, don't give up. It does get better. And if you know somebody else who's struggling, please share this with them. And just send it along as a text or an email and say, hey, I think that this would be helpful if you listen to this. And I just wanted you to know it gets better. And this guy who's on this podcast, who's talking about it, he's been doing this since 1998. He's been in the shit and the mud and the blood. He's been struggling and climbing and moving forward and carrying his standards since 1998. Over two decades. And he's still here saying, it gets better. And if he can say that, and I can trust his word, then I know no matter where I'm at today, It's going to get better. I just have to keep moving forward. So please, for the love of God, for the love of all that is good, for yourself, for your family, for those who you love, for those who look to you to take the lead, for those who look to you to set the standard, don't go back. Don't look down. Keep moving forward because it does get better. Peace.